for this second event in year-long series, Speaking of Scripture, Interfaith Conversations on Teaching Sacred Texts. This series is co-sponsored by the Villanova Center for Liberal Education, ACS. The center is, is directed by Dr. Jack Newby and Dr. Mary Lou Hill, and co-sponsored by the Villanova Institute for Teaching and Learning, directed by Dr. Carol Weiss. For support for today's lecture, we have a long list of people to thank. Uh, we also thank the Departments of Theology and Religious Studies, Department of English, the Office for Mission Effectiveness, Department of Humanities and Augustine Traditions, Villanova Hillel, and the Honors Program. So many sincere thanks to all our sponsors. And the protocol. So the lecture will last until around 5.30. So let's say that our lecture will take 50 minutes or so. If you have to go at 5.30 or heaven forbid earlier, I don't know if this direction really makes sense any longer. I was going to say, why don't you sit toward the back? But there really aren't any, any seats. So if you have to go early, uh, just try not to disturb people next to you. I hope, too, that you'll stay until at least 6. That's what I'm thinking. So lecture in today, 5.30. We have a half hour for question and answer. And I hope that the students will stay. This is your chance to ask questions. And for faculty, it will be students only for at least the first while the question and answer. So we'll be very patient for your questions. Again, this is your chance to learn some more after the lecture from the next one. So let me begin my, my introduction with a brief story from the Bible. Bear with me for just a moment. Very brief. Uh, Esau, described as a man skilled in hunting, a man in the field, we're told his father loved for the game that Esau brought him, comes upon his brother Jacob, described as a simple man, a dweller in tents, who we're told that his mother Rebecca loved. If you haven't read chapter 25 of Genesis, you can see we have my students You can follow the story, so don't follow it. So don't worry. If you have read it, you know the story. The text tells us that Esau was famished. And Esau said to Jacob, let me go down some of this red, red stuff. Red, red stuff. Steal the Jacob had prepared. Jacob said, sell now your birthright to me. And Esau did. Then the text reads, he ate and he drank and he rose and he went off and Esau sprang the bird. I can tell this story today since our speaker today, Robert Alton, first threw light on played a really important role in my coming to appreciate the Bible as a sophisticated work of literature. And that's what I hope will be for all of us here today. Jacob, who was initially described in the text as a simple man, proves to be one of the more wildly devious morally ambiguous characters in Genesis. He cheats and steals his way into God's favor. And so we might ask ourselves, why is it that Jacob comes to have a leading role in Genesis, or in other words, Jacob over Esau? Now, Professor Alter draws our attention to the language of the story. Esau says he wants to go to get some red, red stuff. He's so hungry and in such a rush that he can't even take the time to think of the word scoop. Esau is quickly on to the next. Think about what this cascade of verbs. He ate and drank and he rose and he went off. He ate and drank and he rose and he went off. It suggests about his character. What the story shows, Professor Alter observes, is that Esau is altogether too much the slave of the moment and of the body's tyranny to become the progenitor of the great people of Israel. <coughs> Jacob, by contrast to Professor Alter's words, is a man who thinks about the future. He can sacrifice present satisfaction for future gain. He can sacrifice that suit so that he'll have Esau's birthright. 
And so Jacob is somebody God can work with. So God, after the devastation of the flood, decides to work with human beings, crooked and refractory as we are. God decides to work with them to change to Jacob. Now all that can be gotten from carrying just a bit with the language of the story. Robert Alter, our speaker today, is the class of 1937 professor of Hebrew and comparative literature at the University of California, Berkeley, where he taught since 1967. He's also, well, they told me not to flatter, but it's hard not to do. He's also a two-time Guggenheim Fellow and the author of many highly praised books on modern Hebrew literature, uh, 19th and 20th century writers like Kafka and Stendhal and Fielding. Um, uh, the Picaresque novel, as he put it, brought to apotheosis in Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn, which is a book that I love too, and on the Hebrew Bible. His 1981 book on the Bible, The Art of Biblical Narrative, which was but through light on the Jacob story for me, won the National Jewish Book Award for Jewish Thought and stimulated great excitement. What Professor Walter brilliantly showed in this book is that taking the Bible seriously as a work of literature, far from neglecting the Bible's religious character, makes it come alive theologically by making it clear to us just what the biblical stories are saying about God, human beings, and history. So it's not mutually exclusive to read the Bible as literature and to take it seriously as theology. From works of literary criticism, Professor Alter has turned more recently to works of translation, and that's how many of us in ACS know that. Many of us have read these translations, or my students are now reading these translations. They include his David story, his five books of Moses, and most recently his book of Psalms. What's distinctive about Professor Alter's translations is that they aim to make accessible to people without Hebrew just what's going on in the Hebrew text. Much of this, as the title is called as of today, is often lost in translation. The challenge of translating the Bible is getting the play of the Hebrew pattern. So without further ado, please join me in welcoming Professor Robert Alter. Thank you, Professor Kuzak. I'm delighted to be here in Philadelphia, where uh, I uh, have never been before. And uh, I'm particularly gratified to uh, be welcomed by such a, a large uh, turnout. Now, when I stumbled, it wasn't my intention to do this originally, onto the project of translating the Bible. Um, some people began to ask me, well, why would you do something so uh, insane? I mean, there, there are dozens, maybe hundreds of English translations of the Bible. Why uh, do we need another one? Uh, this even came home to me in my family, that it, uh, my nephew, who was a grown man and a very intelligent person, asked, not me, but my sister, he said, why is Uncle Robert translating the Bible? So I, I would like to explain first uh, that my impulse to translate the Bible came from a sense of dissatisfaction with what was out there. Uh, that my, the dissatisfaction is somewhat different for the canonical version of the Bible that we have in, in English, the King James Version, and for the various translations 
that will produce basically in the second half of the 20th century. That is, after the Second World War, to just fill you in on this, there was a whole new stirring of Bible translation activity in the, uh, the three uh, biblical faiths, that, that is uh, uh, Judaism, Protestantism, and Catholicism. And these translations were all produced by uh, uh, ecclesiastical slash uh, scholarly committees. Uh, some of the, the members of the committees were clergymen and uh, others were um, uh, Bible scholars and some were posts. Uh, and the, there were two aims in this enterprise shared by, by the, the three denominations. One was to make the Bible more accessible. Uh, for my money, uh, under uh, misguided assumptions, and I will explain that. And the second, which we're always ready for, is to um, uh, provide Bible translations which reflected up-to-date biblical scholarship. That is, uh, remember that, um, uh, and I'll just stick in my remarks with the Hebrew Bible, that uh, Hebrew is an ancient language. It's been revived, but there are many differences between the modern and the ancient language. And like all ancient languages, uh, our knowledge of it is somewhat imperfect. And uh, over the last half century or more, um, it, our knowledge of biblical Hebrew has gotten better, partly by the discovery of, of um, and the deciphering of other ancient Near Eastern languages, which often throw light on the Bible. So, what could be wrong about all, with all this uh, activity? Um, I would say, basically, there are two problems. A um, deficient sense of English style and a deficient sense of Hebrew style. Let me explain. Evidently, early in the 17th century, uh, when the King James Version was produced, it came out in 1611, you could assemble a group of scholars and clergymen uh, who knew Biblical Hebrew and had a finely developed sense of literary English. Perhaps that was because uh, knowledge wasn't so compartmentalized compartmentalized as it is then, as it is now, excuse me. Uh, in our own time, if you go to Harvard or Yale or Johns Hopkins and do a PhD in biblical studies, you may learn all sorts of things about Northwest Semitic languages and Akkadian and Egyptian and about archaeology going to be a person who reads poetry and prose fiction and who has any sense of the expressive possibilities of the English language. And I think that it's fair to say that all these ecclesiastical committees that, that I've mentioned have done a pretty wretched job in conveying the, the stylistic beauty of the uh, ancient Hebrew. But then there's a flip side. That, that is, that there also has been a problem with the, a deficient sense of Hebrew style. 
Uh, what do I mean by this? Well, when you do a PhD in biblical studies, uh, you're going to you may spend a lot of time working out the nuances of verb tenses, right? Or, or um, how nouns are transformed into other nouns. And all this is very important. I, I, I don't uh, denigrate it in the least. Uh, but you will spend zero time, and I mean really zero time, talking about rhythms in uh, biblical prose, uh, about the, the, the use of, of uh, syntax stylistically, uh, about levels and so forth. This is just a category that is the analysis of style that doesn't exist for biblical studies, academic biblical studies. And for me, all these considerations are crucial. That, that is, uh, I, I would fully second what uh, Professor Kusick said in his introduction, that the literary vehicle for the Bible was absolutely essential for conveying the religious vision of the writers. And their choice of one set of words rather than another set of words, uh, their use of all the expressive means of both uh, prose and poetry, I think are, are very important for uh, a serious understanding and enjoyment of the Bible. I mean, I, I do think that these are wonderful literary texts that, that abundantly deserve to be and can be enjoyed by modern readers. So, let me tick off some of the categories that I think need to be thought about by a translator. And then, uh, in the second half of my remarks, I will get into some examples and maybe comment on why I made certain choices. So, first we have the issue of diction. Okay, what is diction? It's a word that I suppose isn't used much, even in departments of literature these days. Well, basically, it's the level of language. Um, whether it's high, middle, or low, to, to, to use terms. The thinking about biblical narrative, I would say that, that the prevailing diction is, let's call it a kind of middle diction, which is rather simple, it deliberately uses a limited range of vocabulary, as against the, the poetry, which uses a, a much broader range of vocabulary. Uh, there's something almost homespun about it. Uh, at the same time, it has a quiet dignity. Uh, so if, for example, uh, you find um, in one translation of the Joseph story, uh, the, the New Jewish Publication Society uh, translation, that, that Joseph is not offering provisions to all the, the, the earth, but to all the land, but rations, what your ears should tell you is an, an error in diction. That, that is, rations belongs to a different linguistic register. It belongs to the register of army food. You think about a mess tin and K, K rations and 
and so forth. So uh, this preserving the dignity, the directness, the concreteness, and the simplicity of this middle diction is very important. But then if you read uh, Bible translations, you get the sense that everything is the same diction. Uh, either if it's a modern translation, then it's a diction that sounds like Time Magazine. Uh, and uh, if it's an older translation, it's uh, 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 biblicizing diction. Whereas in fact that there are, I think, three uh, perceptible levels of diction in uh, biblical language. One is recognized by scholars, but really not honored much in translation, and that's the poetry. Because the poetry uses a different kind of diction. There are certain words that are used only in poetry and not in prose. So there's a kind of specialized poetic diction. For example, if you want to say light, and the lights overhead, uh, in biblical prose narrative, there's really only one word, or, as at the beginning of Genesis, or ma'or, which is the same word and means the source of life. Uh, if you turn to the poetry, you will find uh, about half a dozen words, which would be roughly the equivalent in English of radiance, effulgence, brilliance, dazzle, and so forth. So that's a real uh, um, difference between poetry and prose. The, uh, the poetry is also, it uses more archaic forms, both archaic words and archaic grammatical forms. Um, then we go in the other direction, in dialogue. Now, by and large, I would say that people in biblical dialogue speak correct uh, literary Hebrew. But there are these interesting gestures, and when we look at, uh, a little later uh, at Genesis 20, I'll try to show that, there are these interesting gestures in the direction of the vernacular. And uh, again, the example from Genesis 25 that, that Professor Busek read is of one illustration where Esau says, let me gulp down some of that red, red stuff. Not only can he think of the, the Hebrew word for stew, but instead of the normal word for give to eat or let me eat, he uses a word that's used nowhere else in the, in the Bible, uh, but it does occur in later Hebrew, and it seems to mean, mean force-feeding an animal. So you see, even the verb is a verb that expresses his crudeness and his... Uh, has a colloquial tension. Okay, so first is the issue of, um, of diction. Um, then uh, there's a matter of precision of word choice, especially in a kind of narrative that uses very few words in comparison with the sort of narrative we're used to reading, then the novel. Uh, the choice of every single word has a special weight. And I'll give you two examples from Genesis. When Hagar uh, is driven out into the wilderness of her son Ishmael, and uh, the, the, um, 
the water skin that she's brought along is empty. This is the blazing sun in, 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 in uh, the, the somewhere in the, the Negev desert of, of present-day Israel. Uh, she's convinced that Ishmael is going to die. So she, uh, I'm not going to use a verb, but she sets him uh, under a bush and then withdraws at, to a distance, saying to herself, let me not see when the child uh, dies. So what is, what is the verb that actually happens? If you look at the various translations, it's like this. Uh, the King James Version says, uh, thrust. She thrusts him under one of the bushes, which is not bad, but it's not good enough. Uh, the various modern translations say she laid him under one of the bushes, she put him under one of the bushes, and, and so forth. What does she really do in the Hebrew? She flings him under one of the bushes. It's a verb that always means a violent gesture of throwing. For example, at the beginning of Exodus, when uh, Pharaoh gives the command to, to uh, kill all the, the male children that are born to the Hebrews, he says, every male child you shall fling finger into the Nile. So, what's going on? I think that all these translators did not bite the bullet. That they, they, as is usually the case, the translator is not nearly as bold as the original writer. What was the original writer trying to do? I think he was trying to convey to us a sense that Hagar has this only child whom she loves dearly and is convinced that within a matter of minutes or hours he's going to be dead, is gripped with a paroxysm of despair. And in her desperation, she flings the child under one of the bushes. She doesn't set him down, she doesn't lay him there, but she flings him. So the word choice has a certain psychological power that is blunted when you try to clean it up or, uh, or boulderize it. Now, let me give you another example that has to do with repeating the same word in uh, a different sense. When Abraham in Genesis 22 is about to sacrifice, or thinks that he's about to sacrifice his son Isaac, he says, uh, well, here's the way it sounds in my translation. And Abraham said to his lads, let me and the lad go up and worship, and then we will return to you. Now that sounds a little weird, right? He said to his lads, let me and the lad. And I believe I'm the only translator to do it that way. But that's the way the Hebrew works. Why does the Hebrew work that way? The Hebrew word that I rendered as lad, na'ah, it, well, its basic meaning is a young boy, uh, but by extension, it moves in two different directions. It can be a special term of affection of a father for his son, as when David uh, says of Absalom, do, do no harm to the, uh, to the lad Absalom. Uh, and then moving in a different direction, because a young boy is not a full adult, a na'ar can be anybody in a position of subservience, 
right? So it can mean servant or slave. And I think almost any translation that you look at will say, and Abraham said to his servants, let me and the lad or me and the boy go up to worship. But the terrible poignancy of this moment is conveyed precisely by the same word being used in two utterly different senses. That, 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 that is, first, Abraham said to his lads, who are his slaves, they're his property. And then he says to them, let me and the lad go up. Okay, uh, now, the, the, um, I, I, went, I will come back to this issue of repetition of words in, in a little bit later when I get into my examples, which I will uh, uh, very soon. Uh, there, there are two other issues that I'd like to mention in translation. One has to do with rhythm. And I hope I'll be able to illustrate this when I read a couple of passages. This is wonderfully rhythmic prose. And I think there's no good literary prose, it's certainly not in any tradition that I can read in the original, that is not somehow rhythmic. That is, rhythm is the beating heart of the story. And when, you, when the, the rhythm turns into arrhythmia, then the, the heart is threatened with failure as with the human heart. Uh, imagine it this way. Uh, imagine that some diabolic editor had gotten hold of the manuscript of Melville's Moby Dick. And he said, well, this is a pretty good novel. I think I'm going to fix it up a little bit. Uh, where uh, uh, Melville says face, I'm going to say countenance, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and he remains true to the storyline, but destroys all those uh, mesmerizing cadences that sound, sound like Shakespeare and often scan as iambic uh, a line. We have, uh, uh, what would be left of Moby Dick? It would be a pretty good story about a, a monomaniacal sea captain in pursuit of a great white whale. Uh, I don't say the story would evaporate, but what would be missing is something of the, the uh, hypnotizing magic of Melville's prose. And it's my contention that all the modern translators, uh, translations of the Bible have done that to, to the Bible. Okay, finally, there's a matter of syntax. And I will uh, touch on two instances, and afterwards move very briefly to the King James Version. Um, one is something called, don't, don't use students' freshmen especially get frightened when you hear that word, I'll explain it. There's something called parataxis. Now, parataxis, the para is the same para as in parallel. It means syntax that is set up in strings of parallel clauses. Uh, and Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw, and behold, uh, three men were coming toward him, and he ran to greet them and he said, like that, and, and, and. Now, this is very much part of the artistry of biblical prose. It connects with the rhythm, which I just talked about, Often, the fact that the relationship between 
two elements in the, the syntactic change is not stipulated. We just have and, and, and. Opens up wonderful windows of ambiguity that the writers exploit. If you read the modern, the King James Version generally honors this. If you look at the modern translations, what they do is they say, however, inasmuch, because, meanwhile. In other words, they're interpreting the story for you instead of leaving it in the shape that the writer meant it to be. So that's one big commitment of mine, to reproduce this parallel syntax which I think is very artful. Uh, the second has commitment that I have in relation to syntax has to do with wiggling syntax around in order to achieve expressive effects, which happens all the time in the Hebrew. I'll, I'll give you just one example. When Joseph's brothers come back to their father in Canaan after their first visit to uh, uh, Egypt, they give him a disturbing report. They say that um, Simeon, one of the, the, the ten of them, has been held hostage in Egypt, and that the man who rules over all of Egypt, because they don't know that, that he's Joseph, their brother, won't see them again unless they bring back Benjamin, his old brother, with them. Now, how does Jacob respond? He says in my translation, Me you have bereaved. Joseph is no longer, and Simeon is no longer, and Benjamin you would take. On me is all the burden. Now I'll just comment on the first part that me you would have bereaved. We don't talk like that. But then literature doesn't talk the way we talk in the streets. There's nothing wrong with a distance between literary language and ordinary language. The Hebrew works like this. The normal way to say, you've bereaved me, is to take the verb bereave, and then you put a suffix on it. It's a me suffix. It's you know, an accusative suffix. But that isn't the way it works here. For good reason, the writer has taken the word me, broken it out by itself, not as a suffix, and put it at the beginning of the sentence. Me, you have bereaved. I think this tells us something about Jacob's character. That ever since Joseph's disappearance, he's assumed the role of a kind of prima donna of paternal grief. And so he makes this little speech where he puts himself out front. Me you have bereaved. Joseph is no longer. And Simeon is no longer. And Benjamin you would take. And then he puts himself at the end. On me is all the burden. So it's the kind of thing that I try to pay attention to. Okay, very quickly, because I do want to get to my examples. The King James Version, of course, is wonderful. It's great literary English. Uh, it has three drawbacks. One is it happens to be written with mistakes. Some of them are quite minor, some of them are, are, are real uh, um, uh, 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 serious blunders, even comical blunders. And that's simply because Biblical Hebrew was, is much better understood now than it was in, in Christian Hebrew circles at the beginning of the 17th century. The second problem with the King James Version 
And this is not its fault. This almost 400 years have passed since it was done, and the English language has changed a lot. So there are words that have changed in meaning we don't understand. Like if you read across M-E-A-T, meat, in the King James Version, it does not mean what you buy in the butcher shop, because in the 17th century it meant food. It was a general term for food. Or uh, th then there are words that we basically don't use, like what does froward, F-R-O-W-A-R-D, I'm not going to tell you, go home and look in your dictionaries. Uh, the third problem with the King James Version is this. It is famously eloquent, but a good part of the time, not always, a good part of the time, its eloquence is not biblical eloquence, but Jacobean uh, eloquence. So Jacobean means from the, the reign of the King Jacobus uh, or James. Uh, that, that is, it, it uses um, fancier words at times, words like iniquity, say, which uh, the Hebrew would never use. It, it, it is much more oratund, it uses more syllables, it doesn't have the compactness and sometimes not the plainness of the Hebrew. So those are my problems with existing translations. Now, let's get on to uh, verse and chapter. My first example from Genesis is from the beginning of the flood story. This is Genesis 7, beginning verse 6. And I will read a little bit and stop here and there to comment on choices. Now, I'm sorry, Noah was 600 years old when the flood came, water over the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives came into the ark because of the waters of the flood, of the clean animals and of the animals that were not clean, and of the fowl and of all that crawls upon the ground, two each came to Noah into the ark, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. And it happened after seven days that the waters of the flood were over the earth. Now, what I, I want to observe, we'll, we'll come across a couple of other examples, is the stark simplicity of the verbs. The waters of the flood were over the earth, not uh, whelmed up over the earth or, or some other fancy verb, but just a simple verb to be, were over the earth. And I think some of the strength of the, the narrative comes from that simplicity. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the seventh day of the month, on that day. And now we have a line of poetry. Uh, I'll tell you in a minute how I know it's a line of poetry, okay? All the wellsprings of the great deep burst, and the casements of the heavens were open. The reason why I know it's poetry is because it has two symmetrical halves that parallel each other in meaning, which is, in, in very shorthand form, is how a line of biblical poetry is constructed. And I, I set it out typographically as a one-line poem in, uh, in my translation, but let me comment on one word, casements. Well, well probably at first thought, some of you would say, what the hell is a casement? And then uh, a number of you will 
will remember there's a term called casement windows in the panel you crank open. Uh, but it is an English word uh, meaning, uh, that means window. Why don't I say window? Uh, as the King James Version says, window, the modern translations tend to do something like, say, the sluice gates of the heavens were open, which is a fatal error, which to substitute your own metaphor uh, in translation for the metaphor used in the original. Well, there is a, a, an ordinary biblical word for window, chalon, which is used probably many dozens of times in the Bible. Then there's another word, anuba, which is the one that's used here. And that occurs only half a dozen times in the whole Bible. And with one exception, always in poetic texts. So what one can infer is that this is a poetic diction term. It's not, if you were uh, talking to a neighbor on the streets in Jerusalem in the 8th century BCE, you wouldn't say Aruba, uh, you would say that other word, Chalon. It's, it's a literary word. So I thought, well, what kind of English equivalent to indicate there's a different diction here. And I thought of casements in, in Keats's odes, casements in, in uh, Shakespeare, and that seemed to work well enough. Let me continue. And the rain was over the earth forty days and forty nights. That very day, Noah and Shem and Ham and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of the sons together with them, came into the ark. They, as well as beasts of each kind, and cattle of each kind, and each kind of crawling thing that crawls on the earth, and each kind of bird, each winged thing. And again, I tried to catch something of the cadence of the They came to Noah into the ark, two by two of all flesh that has the breath of life within it. And those that came in, male and female of all flesh, they came as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him up. And the flood was forty days over the earth, and the waters multiplied and brought the ark upward, and it rose above the earth. Now, I'm aware that to say the waters multiplied sounds a little strange in English, but I think it's tolerable. And for me, it's, it was an important choice because the very same verb used at the beginning of Genesis, be fruitful and multiply, for procreation is now used for destruction. So there's a kind of irony in that verb. Let me continue. And the waters surged and multiplied mightily over the earth, and the ark went on the surface of the water. And again, that it didn't sail, it, didn't, it wasn't tossed on the surface of the water, but that stark simplicity, which is part of the beauty of the thing, of went on the surface of the water. And the water, uh, okay, I'll read just a couple of more lines here. Fifteen cubits above them, uh, and the water surged most mightily over the earth, and all the high mountains under the heavens were covered. Fifteen cubits above them, this water surged as the mountains were covered. And all flesh that stirs on the earth perished, the fowl and the cattle and the beasts and all swarming things that swarm upon the earth and all humankind. 
Okay, just one last comment of translation uh, um, uh, choice. That's humankind. I, I consistently translate in uh, Genesis the Hebrew word Adam uh, or Bnei Adam as human or humankind because it doesn't mean man. That is, it's not a, a gender differentiated term. Grammatically, it's male. But it's clear that it refers to both men and women. That is, as in the creation, the first creation story, male and female in the King James Version created event. Uh, in the image of God, he created not the man, but the human creature. Uh, because if it's male and female, it couldn't just be the man. Uh, okay, let me go back now to the beginning of Genesis. I think I will skip one example to have time for um, Genesis 20 and uh, talk a little bit about, well, I'll read to you and talk a little bit about my choices for uh, uh, the beginning of creation. When God began to create heaven and earth, okay, let me stop there. This annoyed some people, although a few uh, uh, reviewers liked it a lot. Because we're all used to, in the beginning, God created. In fact, the Hebrew grammar does not say that. Uh, and this is something that's been known since the Middle Ages among uh, Hebrew commentators. Uh, that, that is, uh, the, the word, it doesn't say, Reshit means beginning. But it doesn't say, Ba Reshit, in the beginning, which you can't, cannot say in Biblical Hebrew. Reshit is always attached to a noun or a verbal noun afterwards. So literally, it's in the beginning of God's creation, which uh, I translated when God began, which suggests something a little more dynamic than the flat out uh, in the beginning. But uh, when God began to create heaven and earth, and the earth then was welter and waste and darkness over the deep in God's breath, Hovering over the waters, God said, let there be light. Okay, two things. The welter and waste, the Hebrew is tohu vavohu, which is in various translations, chaos and formlessness and so forth. Uh, and that's what it means pretty much. But, of course, the phonetic effect of the rhyme, tohu vavohu, is part of the strength of the narrative here. And I couldn't think of a rhyme, so instead I used an alliteration, welfare and grace. Um, and then God's breath. Well, the same Hebrew word means spirit, breath, and wind. And it's hard, it's a judgment call to figure out which it means here. Uh, I have a hunch that with the concreteness of biblical narrative, that, that with that uh, breath, and the fact that afterwards God breathes his breath into the first human creature, that breath is the leading contender. But you, sometimes you're not dead sure when you make a translation short choice. And there was light, and God saw the light that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And it was evening, and it was morning, first day. And God said, by the way, first day is just like the Hebrew. It doesn't say the first day. Well, it, literally it says, uh, 
day one, but that sounded too journalistic, so uh, I uh, uh, opted for first day. And God said, let there be a vault in the midst of the waters, and let it divide water from water. And God made the vault, and it divided the water beneath the vault from the water from above the vault. And so it was, and God called the vault heavens, and it was evening, and it was morning, second day. Now, um, what I want to comment on here is the vault thing. Uh, the King James Version famously says firmament. And that uh, philologically is accurate. That is, if uh, the, the Hebrew word rakia means something that's pounded out into a flat slab. And apparently, in the ancient Near East, they believed that the heaven was a, a, a flat slab uh, up there. Uh, but the problem with firmament is it's a, it's a mouthful. It's three syllables, it's a strange word, and it, it destroys the rhythmic flow of the prose. So remembering that you can say in English poetry, the vault of the heavens, and the vault is an architectural term, of course, uh, I thought this monosyllabic word uh, worked better. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered in one place so that the dry land will appear. And so it was. And God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Okay, I think I will break off here because I'd like to, uh, with the first chapter of Genesis, because I'd like to use the rest of my time for uh, Genesis 20. Now, uh, an important thing to keep in mind about biblical narrative is that most of the important things, uh, certainly after the first uh, 11 chapters of Genesis, most of the important things happen in dialogue. The, the, um, I, I think the first truly subtle, uh, sometimes even psychologically complicated and sociologically complicated, use of dialogue in Western literature occurs in, in the Hebrew Bible. Now, you have in Homer some great moving speeches, but they're speeches and they're not dialogue. You know, Achilles or uh, Hector or uh, Odysseus will go on for 30 lines or 70 lines uh, talking about um, epic heroic values or, or, or whatever. And this is great stuff. But it isn't the give and take of dialogue, which you find again and again in, in, in the Bible. So, just to set the context, uh, we have in Genesis 18 through 22, to the birth of Isaac, a series of interlocking stories that first seem uh, unconnected, all having to do with procreation and survival. That is, in Genesis 18, uh, the promise of, of seed, of offspring, is again reiterated by God to uh, uh, um, Abraham. And uh, Sarah overhears that next year she's going to have a child. She's already 90 years old. And the whole thing seems impossible. Uh, then in chapter 19, we have first the destruction of Sodom, which is the annihilation of, of a whole people. Uh, and then this strange story about how Lot's two daughters get him drunk 
and have sex with him in order to conceive children because they think that all the men of the earth have been wiped out after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. So again, the, the notion of procreation in, in a uh, rather aberrant way comes across in that story. And then we move from there directly to the story of um, Abimelech, where it turns out there's also an issue of procreation uh, because uh, it turns out that there's a plague of infertility that's not going to be in the section we read that strikes the house of Abimelech. Um, and then after that story, we go finally go back to Sarah and Abraham, and Sarah conceives and bears Isaac. But let's go to the dialogue here. And Abraham journeyed onward from there to the Negev region, and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, the king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. And God came to Abimelech in a night dream and said to him, you are a dead man because of the woman you took, as she is another's wife. Now, when I translate, I should explain that I try not to look at other translations until after I've done my drafts. Um, I decided on you're a dead man because of the abruptness of it. Uh, because the Hebrew is very abrupt. It's just two syllables, or three syllables. In Chabet, like a mate means dead. Uh, you know, you're good as dead. Uh, then I discovered that the King James Version also said dead man, to my surprise. It said, behold, you are a dead man. Which uh, I was slightly embarrassed to reinvented the King James Version. But I, I think they did it for a different reason. But they they weren't hearing the abruptness. They saw the, the term mate, and they understood it as a noun, dead man. In fact, it's a verb here. This I said that their Hebrew was not that great. And the, the literal sense of the verb is you're about to die, or you're on the point of death. But I, I render that as you're a dead man because of the abruptness. But Abimelech had not come near her. That is obviously in the sexual sense. And he said, my lord, will you slay a nation even if innocent? Now, this is weird, right? Well, you, so that doesn't sound quite like English, but the Hebrew doesn't quite sound like Hebrew. And if you look at other translations, the King James Version um, says, um, Will thou slay also a righteous nation? Which is a little more normalized English, but it's still fairly close to the Hebrew. And then if you look at the... Uh, the Jerusalem Bible, uh, we have, um, uh, um, by the way, the Jerusalem Bible, instead of you're a dead man, says you are to die, which kind of smooths it out in a way that the, uh, the Hebrew isn't. Um, and then they say, Lord, would you kill someone even if he is upright? which totally removes the nation. It makes it very fluent, but uh, misrepresents the Hebrew. And the, the New Jewish Publication Society says, you kill innocent people. 
which also makes it sound normal, kind of straddling between people and nation. I think that the writer chose nation and, and this rather awkward expression, uh, a, a nation even though innocent, because this story comes right after the story of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's as though obliquely uh, Abimelech is tweaking God and saying, are you up to your old tri tricks again? You're about to destroy a whole nation? Because you may remember that in Genesis 18, when uh, Abraham tries to bargain with God to save Sodom, he says, would you wipe out the innocent with the guilty? So he uses the same term. Oh, okay. Uh, sometimes strangeness is worth preserving. With, um, did not she, now uh, Abimelech continues to speak, and he says, did not he say to me, she is my sister? And she, she too said, he is my brother. Now, if you look at the other translations, nobody else uh, uh, does this. For example, um, uh, the Jerusalem Bible, which is a Catholic translation, says, she herself said, he is my brother. The, uh, the JPS says, um, um, uh, let me see if I can find it. Uh, he himself said to me, she is my sister. What the Hebrew dialogue registers is a kind of splutter of indignation. That is, the Hebrew repeats the, the, the word she. He, he gamamra, she, she said. And, and I think that to get across Abimelech's character, how he feels in this predicament, even his psychology, a translator ought to repeat the splutter of uh, the Hebrew. Let me go on. Um, with a pure heart and with clean hands I have done this. And God said to him in the dream, Indeed I know that with a pure heart you have done this. And I, on my part, have kept you from offending against me. And so I have not allowed you to touch her. Now, send back the man's wife, for he is a prophet. And he will intercede for you, and you may live. And if you do not send her back, know that you are doomed to die, you and all that belongs to you. Now, we have a second dialogue. And I'll take about five or six minutes just to, to look with you at the second dialogue. It's one, now, not between Abimelech and God, but between Abraham and Abimelech. And Abraham rose early in the morning and called to all his servants. Uh, all his servants appear in the Jerusalem Bible as, as his full court. And I, I, I would like to throttle the people who do that. That, that is, of course, the servants are his courtiers. But to say his full court instead of his servants is to interpose an explanation where there should be a translation. He called to all the servants, and he spoke these things in their hearing, and the men were terribly afraid. And Abimelech called to Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I offended you that you should bring upon me and my kingdom so great an offense? Things that should not be done you have done with me. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you, did you imagine when you did this thing? There's something odd going on here. Normally in biblical uh, dialogue, 
There's a strictly formulaic way of introducing speech. And X said to Y, and then you have the speech. And then and Y answered and said, and then you have Y's speech. But there's another pattern, which I actually only noticed after I wrote my book of biblical narrative, which is, and X said to Y, and then you have the speech, and then a re repetition of the formula for introducing speech. And X said to Y, and X continues speaking. What's going on in all the instances I've been able to find is that repeating the formula for introducing dialogue is an indication that the second party to the dialogue is having problems. Either he's amazed, or he's embarrassed, or he's dumbfounded, something like that. And I think that's what's going on here. Uh, that that uh, Abraham has been confronted in this uh, angry way by Abimelech. He doesn't know what to say. So Abimelech repeats himself, giving a kind of summarizing version of his first speech. Uh, what did you imagine when you did this thing? And then Abraham says, For I thought there is surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. In other words, he thought this place is another Sodom. Two strangers come into the town, and everybody in town wants to gang rape at least one of them. Uh, but of course, it turns out that Gerar is not Sodom. And in point of fact, now here's an unusual word in the Hebrew, which I believe is a legalistic term. That is, Abraham is starting to hair split. So he says, well, you know, in a certain sense, she might be considered my sister, sister, and in point of fact, she is my sister, my father's daughter, though not my mother's daughter, and she became my wife. And it happened, and here's the last sentence I'm going to read. It happened when the gods made me a wanderer from my father's house that I told her, this is the kindness you can do for me. In every place to which we come, save me. He is my brother. Now this whole setup is rather morally ambiguous. In other words, if he comes into town with his wife and they know that she's his wife, they'll kill him to have sexual access to her. If they think they're brother and sister and that she's an unmarried woman, then they'll have sexual access to her without killing him. As it turns out, nobody has sexual access that they're in, in the story. But there is one word choice that I want to linger over for a minute as I conclude, uh, where uh, now I don't mean to be beating my own drum. Uh, every translator of the Bible or any great work leader should be humble and know that you make mistakes and also you make uh, judgments which might not be prudent judgments, uh, and I'm sure that's true of uh, my own translation. But here, I'm convinced that I'm right and everybody else is wrong. And let, let, let me read that let these words again. And it happened when the gods, plural, when they were from my father's house. Now, as far as I know, um, the only translator of the Bible to render this as the gods rather than the God. Rather than God. Okay. The Hebrew 
word for God, many of you probably know, is Elohim. Now, Elohim is grammatically anomalous, it's grammatic because it has a plural ending, im is the masculine plural. It's always treated as a masculine singer. So why this came about, it's a, a, a place I'm not convinced. Linguistic from to God region. So you know he's not referring to God, he's referring to uh, um, plural gods, to polytheistic gods. Abraham also uses a plural verb. And there is, it is not, not that there's anything profound here, but it is, it's a kind of uh, subtle maneuver of realistic dialogue. To whom is Abraham speaking? He is speaking to a polytheist. So he doesn't want to make waves. So he says to this polytheist, uh, almost as a kind of uh, idiomatic turn of speech. And so it happened when the gods made me a wanderer. You can, uh, this is my faith, the gods made me a wanderer, that I decided on this particular strategy. So uh, we can see that, that for purposes of diplomacy, when Abraham, our forefather, is speaking to a polytheist, he knows how to speak in polytheistic lingo. I hope these uh, examples give you at least some sense of the fact that, that there's, there are all kinds of fascinating things going on. And the, the level of interaction between characters uh, on the, the level of, of psychology and characterization and articulation of themes in these stories, that things going on that are really dependent on the wonderful artfulness of the language. And with uh, whatever imperfections and failures, that, that's what I, I have been trying to do to convey in English in my uh, translations of the Bible. Thank you.
there is this need for, it's not a verb, this deep uh, part of speech, let's say, in Biblical Hebrew, which is called a presentative. It's a way, those of you who know French, you know voici and voila. Uh, some of you know French. You know, like, uh, um, uh, ah, voici le chapeau. You know, here's the hat, right? I look at my hat and here's the hat. So uh, you have this verb, uh, no, I'm sorry, not verb, you have this term in Hebrew, and um, uh, it repeatedly occurs when somebody looks at something and sees it. Often it will give you the characters, the shift to the characters' point of view. Like when Jacob comes to the well where he's going to meet Rachel, he lifted up his eyes and he saw and look, behold, that's the word he meant. Now, if you direct that same word toward yourself, that is, if you put a first person singular suffix on it, uh, then it means here I am ready to hear what you're saying, ready to perform your command, something like that. And interest um, in that same uh, word occurs in the dialogue between uh, Abraham and Isaac as they're going up the mountain. Yes. Of God. 
And in, in um, Genesis, it often seems that there are vague vestiges of a polytheistic picture, world picture or mythology trailing behind this uh, one and only God. And, and this is not, by the way, just a modern skeptical uh, or, or hyper-historical notion that is the, the great medieval Hebrew commentator Rashi, who lived in uh, 12th century France, uh, commenting on this, this use of the first person plural here, let us make, uh, and so forth, says um, he consulted his entourage. He uses uh, a Latin word in his Hebrew, uh, his familia, the same word as family. Uh, this entourage would have been sort of lesser divine beings. And of course you see that again in the frame story of the book of Job. So they persisted for quite a while in the uh, biblical world some notion that God was up there supreme, but that there were other quasi-divine creatures, angels, however you imagine them, who were part of the divine court. And I think that's what's going on with the first person plural. Yes? Sodom solely because of their sexual immorality or also because of their inhospitable nature 
the question is God's decision to um, uh, destroy Sodom was it dictated by the, their sexual behavior, by their, their lack of lack of hospitality. Um, now, it's never spelled out. We're told that, that um, uh, in a very general terms, that the outcry, God says, uh, in Genesis 18, the outcry of Sodom has come up to me. So there's some kind of uh, morally abominable practices that are going on, but we're not told why. Now, I, I think that uh, maybe other things as well are, are uh, implied, and in fact the early rabbis had inventable kinds of stories about the, the, the way the sodomites would cheat people in, in um, uh, commerce and so on, and steal and so forth. But what we see in this story is this. I'm going to start with hospitality and move from there to sex. Hospitality. <laughs> well, I, I guess I guess hospitality could be a form of providing a form of providing sex. That's not what goes on here. Um, the uh, hospitality in the ancient Mediterranean was uh, an ultimate criterion of civilized behavior. Why is this so? Remember that this is the period before you have nation states. There are these little city kingdoms. So you don't have um, the authority of law and, and let's say a national law enforcement service and so forth, uh, keeping people in line. So if somebody goes wandering and he comes to a town, or he comes to even to an isolated dwelling in the countryside. Um, he has to count on the fact that the people whom he encounters there will take him in and uh, offer him food to eat, offer him a place to rest, and will not do terrible things to him. Let me. Uh, offer a parallel to the uh, biblical story from the Odyssey. When uh, Odysseus and his men arrive at the island where, where uh, the Cyclops lives, they find someone who should be a host, but in fact, instead of feeding his guests, he eats them, which is not nice. You know, it's not civilized. <laughs> and uh, uh, so th this is the, the mark of uh, uh, Polyphemus, the Cyclops monster, being beyond the pale of civilization. Uh, so in, in the biblical equivalent, uh, after the two men arrived in Sodom, all the males were, were told from uh, uh, Lads just beyond puberty to old men want to gang rape them. So we have a combination of unbridled lust, uh, of violent promiscuity, with 
a violation uh, of the, the uh, basic considerations of, um, of hospitality. So it, it's a, I think those two things, maybe not excluding other abominable acts, suggest that, that uh, the sodomites are beyond the pale of civilization. And of course, we have, um, uh, in the immediately preceding story, in the the Sodom story is Genesis 19. In Genesis 18, we have an antithetical story. That is, three strangers arrive in front of Abraham's tent, and he decide. And the first thing he says is, um, uh, "Let me send the lad to slaughter a, a lamb, and I'll prepare a feast, and so forth." So we have the the pastoralist extending kind hospitality to the strangers, and then the urbanites, and there is a, a kind of anti-urban bias in Genesis, uh, getting ready to gang rape the, the, the visitors. Yes? So uh, the question is, when God in Exodus reveals himself to Moses at the, the burning bush, um, and Moses wants to know what the name of this deity who is speaking to him from the fire is, uh, God says, I am that I am. In Hebrew, Eyeh Asher Eyeh. I'm glad someone asked me a question that I really can't answer because it, it's intrinsically unanswerable. That, that is, one thing that, uh, maybe this is true of other great works of literature, but it's uh, especially true of the Bible. There are moments in the Bible that are profound mysteries, and we don't have pat answers to them, and even you know, philological analysis can't help you that much. Uh, apparently, when God says this, he is uh, playing on his name, uh, Yahweh, which sounds like Eyeh, I will be what I will be. Uh, but exactly what he's saying is rather open-ended. Maybe it means, uh, unlike all other agents and beings in creation who are subject to limitation, I am that I am, I can be whatever I want to be. I am not subject to limitation. I am an absolutely powerful uh, um, and uh, an unique God. Uh, th that's a stab in the direction of what it might mean, but I, I don't really have a pat answer to that. Yes?
Okay, the, the question is, when we have the, the refrain in Genesis 1, and, and God said that it was good, uh, is this uh, superfluous in the way you're asking? Is there any doubt that, that it was good? Um, I, I think now, this, the, the two creation stories that follow one after the other, this is the one that scholars call the priestly version. And I, I won't trouble you about biblical source criticism. It's generally thought that this is a bit later, maybe a couple of centuries later than the second version. The second version, we have no speech acts and, and it's much more concrete. God sort of shapes the first human out of the soil where the potter works with the clay. And even uh, the, the, the verb to create is not used, but rather the verb to fashion, which is the same verb you would use when the potter is turning something on its wheel. So why, do, why is there this in that, uh, and it was good, as far as I can make out, the priestly version of creation is far more harmonious than any previous creation story that we know of from the ancient Near East. Uh, what I mean is this. Um, typically, creation took place through some kind of primordial struggle between different gods. Uh, the, the basic scenario is that a land god or a sky god or a god of order struggles with a, uh, a violent and kind of formless and scary sea god, sometimes imagined as a sea monster. Uh, Leviathan is one of the names for that sea god. Uh, and uh, the sea god will crop up in poetic imagery, in biblical poetry uh, later on. Uh, so in that imagination of creation, there's lots of tension, there's conflict. And uh, against that, I think that the priestly writer wanted to convey us to us a sense, and here we're closer to Aquinas and to Maimonides, that um, creation is a beautiful, orderly thing. It's a kind of divine system translated into the world that we live in. in kind of a choreography from the first day to the seventh day. And they are not, they don't come into being out of a battle between opposing elements. And they even don't come into being out of some kind of uh, artisan-like working with materials, but they come into being through speech, through a series of divine speech acts. And I, I think that the refrain, and he saw that it was good, and he saw that it was good, is very much a way of reinforcing that harmonious sense of creation. That is, this is not a, a, a creation that is riven with conflict, but it's a, a, a 
beautiful uh, cosmic order. Yes? Okay, the, the, the question is a very personal one. Uh, 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 if I started out, as, as I guess I have said somewhere in the interview, not believing uh, in a personal God, did my working so closely with the Hebrew text of, of the Bible somehow uh, shift my sense of faith or introduce a new faith? To me, um, I, I would say not really. That, that is what, what it, it did was put me in touch with the religious vision of these writers, which seems to me a, uh, a profound and uh, subtle vision that we can't discount, that we have to continually uh, try to come to terms with. I, I would also say, since uh, faith is a very personal thing, that I, I don't think uh, that reading the Bible and even studying the Bible very closely, and, and the closest way to study any text is to try to translate it. To, to wrestle word by word with what the word choices mean. I, I don't think that there is one inevitable or predictable faith outcome. Uh, I can readily imagine people who would be utterly transformed. Uh, I, I can imagine people who would come away pretty much the way that they went into it. Um, and of course, it, it, it's consent of, of all that, at all, that some people, after wrestling with the Bible, might, might say, this belongs to, to a, a worldview that I, I cannot in any uh, slightest detail accept. So, so that there, there's no simple answer to that. Maybe one more question. The question is, after all I've done, do, do uh, I think that the, the Bible could be the inspired or, or the, the written word of God? Now, Inspired and written are two different A different version, but it's a legitimate version of the question that, that I just answered. Um, as far as the written word of God, that is in the fundamentalist sense of God dictates and Moses or somebody else writes down, uh, I, I, for me this is not a, a tenable view. That, that is, uh, biblical scholarship is done too much about 
the way the Bible evolved over the centuries of biblical history, the way uh, these ancient editors that Bible scholars call redactors uh, um, wove together different sources. Uh, so we, we know too much about that for, for me to in, in any way accept the model of his being the, the actual, literal, written words that God has written or dictated to, to human beings. Now, as far as, uh, in other words, when I study the Bible, I see uh, everywhere the evidence of human imagination and of human literary artistry. Uh, this does not exclude and here I come back to what I, I said in, in answer to you, uh, that, that you can draw many different conclusions from a close study of the Bible. This does not exclude the possibility of inspiration. That is, um, when I read the biblical writers, it seems to me that the authenticity of their sense of being inspired. And I don't know that they, except for the prophets in a certain way, but in general, there are no explicit claims made in the Bible that um, uh, everything is dictated to me, that these very words are God's words. Um, the, the one exception, of course, is the Ten Commandments. Which uh, are dictated by God, and um, uh, Moses serves as a kind of amanuensis or, or, or secretary. But otherwise, no such claim is made, and um, so I don't doubt the, the authenticity of the experience of the writers that they were deeply persuaded that they uh, were inspired by God. Um, whether, um, I, I think that it's a condescending to say, well, that was a delusion, and, and I don't draw that conclusion. But what I would say is this, that if, in fact, um, God, if you want to make it more extract, uh, 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 the uh, divine principle that inheres in things, uh, manifests itself, to human beings. It has to do it through the medium of the human imagination. I mean, these were human beings uh, uh, like you and me, whether or not we call them inspired. And so um, I go at it in my own work from the end of the human imagination. That is, I, I look at the way the uh, the resources of the literary imagination are tapped in order to uh, express a vision of God and creation and the, the future of humankind. Thank you very much.